0: Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest for this episode of the podcast really doesn't need an introduction because everyone knows who you are, Matt Brindleson. uh <laughs> brewmaster
1: for Firestone Walker. Pleasure to yeah. be here. Pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, You know, it's uh, ever since we started this podcast back in 2017, it's like, gosh, I need to get mad on the podcast. And it's like, are we ready for that? Are we ready? Uh -uh. So, uh, you know, here we are in 2020 in the fourth year of the podcast and finally having a conversation (laughs) um (laughs) you really don't need any introduction matt uh you know by my count 54 gabf medals since 2002 25 of those being gold with firestone walker nine before that at, at slo brewing before the firestone and walker bought it um 28 world beer cup medals, 13 of which are gold two of those or two more from slo i mean that's that's a crazy, incredible record that you've got there. Um, I will say that I have felt privileged to, uh, and have the good fortune to get to know you and spend time with you over the years at our uh, Craftman Bring Brewers retreats up at uh, Devil's Thumb Ranch. Um, also in your home and Paso Robles at Firestone Walker, uh, doing everything from blending the 21st anniversary beer to uh, come in and uh, being there for the last number of uh, Firestone Walker invitationals. Um, anyway, it's exciting to have you on the podcast, Matt.
1: Uh, Jamie, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to finally be here. <laughs> yeah, why did it take so long? I know, right? <laughs> well, it's because we've spent so much good time together, you know. Um, you know, you mentioned the Colorado event, and I, I can't think of anything cooler. I hope that comes back around again. I mean, getting a number of us, kind of uh, professional brewers, to tackle a homebrew kit, um, yeah, that was amazing. I remember it snowing while we were brewing outdoors <laughs> in Colorado in the Rockies. It was insane
0: it's an extreme brewing there was that first year that we did it we had no idea what it was going to be like um, and I remember when Stephen Powell's from Boulevard came in, he, was, he looked at this brew system and it was a little, you know, like one, one barrel Ruby street system. He's Like I've never brewed on anything less than like a 30 hectoliter brew system. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, so, but that it was amazing how competitive and into it you all. Uh,
1: oh man. God! Yeah. <laughs> I felt the same way. I'm like, oh man, it's been a while since I home brewed. You trust me with this thing, <laughs> but no, it was, it was but, yeah. awesome. It was such a great event.
0: Well, you know, we uh, we were going to take the year off in 2020 anyway and didn't plan an event. And turns out that that was the smartest possible strategy, given that everything got canceled in 2020. Um, But I'll tell you, after this past year of social isolation and uh, I mean, I I agree with you, I think I think we have to bring it back. So maybe maybe 2022 is the year when the, the Brewers retreats make a return. Nonetheless, and I digress, we should get into talking about brewing before we do. As the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. GD's micro channel condensers are built with all aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer braced connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call GD Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at GDChillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and no modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and a nutty character, suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1 800 374 273 Nine. Uh, for those of you who are Craft beer Brewing subscribers out there, subscribers to the magazine, um, Matt is going to be writing some stories for the next four issues of the magazine uh, starting in our June-July issue. Excited to have you on board for that, Matt. And uh, all Access subscribers will uh, later this year get to see some uh, classes in our online education program, coupled with Matt and then uh, with some other uh, some rock stars over at the Firestone Walker operation. So excited to be putting together some uh, fun content with you all and uh in 2021.
1: Yeah, looking forward to it.
0: So, Matt, we normally kick off the podcast with this you know, history and background and, and brewing arc. And uh, we've written about yours multiple times in the magazine. If people want to read your pick six, it's in issue number one of Craft Beer & Brewing. <laughs> if people want to learn about your strategy for blending, that's issue number two of Craft Beer & Brewing from 2014. Over the years, we've certainly tapped into your, uh, your brewing brain a whole bunch of times. And so, um, but you just recently had a pretty remarkable year in um, a difficult year all around for everybody. You had already made plans to take off to Europe for, uh, you know, take advantage of Firestone Walker's relationship with uh, Duval and, uh, and tell us about that and that kind of experience.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been with the company the better part of 20 years and boy, time flies. Um, and it's already been, uh, at least five years, um, since we partnered with, with Duval and, um, you know, that, that also is a relationship that probably started I was thinking about this the other day, I probably met Hedwig Neven, uh, the, the brewmaster at, at Duval somewhere between 2001, right about the time I started at Firestone and, and 2003, because, it was either first when he judged a World Beer Cup, or when uh, a few of us took our first epic Belgian tour, which was uh, John Mallett, uh, Fal Allen from Anderson Valley, Jen Talley who was at Squatters at the time, uh, I think Chris Bird who was the registrar at Siebel. All of us jumped on a plane and did one of those you know headbanger tours where we hit you know three breweries a day and just. You know, tore it up in Belgium, just saw everything because uh, at least I hadn't been there for that type of an experience. And we did visit Duval on that trip. And it was also um, the perfect timing was that it was the uh, Belgian celebration, brewer celebration in the Grand Plaza in Brussels. So we then went with Hedwig as our kind of host. Um, to this brewers only tasting, the Grand Plaza. Again, this is back in two thousand three, and I'm just my mind is just blown. Every beer is poured in its proper glass. The brewmaster standing there. Uh, you know, I was just like it was one of those pinchy moments. I pretty much could have ended my brewing career at that moment, and that was when I met Hedwig, um, and all of us has con- have continued uh, to have you know continue communicating with and 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 seeing Hedwig whenever we go over. So long and short of it, I mean, I I knew Hedwig well. Um, I like to give David uh, Walker uh, crap that, you know, when, when Michelle Morgat first came to tour the brewery, he called me first (laughs) because that was his connection through Hedwig. So yeah. And then, and then when we, and when the partnership came about, when, when Duval bought into Firestone Walker, one of the first things I said was, Hey, now that this is going down and we have this incredible resource, um, I want to take and spend some serious time in Europe. Of course, I've always wanted to, you know, kind of live or at least spend some extended time uh, in Europe. So, uh, and they were right away, they're like, yeah, that's a great idea, you know, shared experience, you know, we'll, we'll we'll make that happen. And really, it was up to me to get everything set, you know, quote, unquote, on autopilot back here in Paso Robles to afford me the ability uh, uh, to to, kind of leave the good ship Firestone Walker for a full year and head over we I, I moved my family i've got two young kids and uh, we moved the entire family over to Antwerp, which is about twenty five or thirty minutes north of Breon where the brewery is in Purs. Um yeah, and kind of immersed myself uh, in it
0: <laughs> what uh you know now it wasn't just a year long vacation obviously you know you've, you've taken the family over there um, were you engaging in Brewing, learning, brewing, teaching. Um, You know what? uh, How did you, uh, you know, focus the time that you were spending there?
1: Um, You know, it was a it was a really nice mix. Um, I think fortunately, I think when I first got there, I was a little disappointed that I wasn't being assigned like to a particular department or you know a shift, so to speak. Um, Because I really I really wanted to get on the floor and do as much as I could. Um, But that turned out to be a blessing because I was really allowed to. Not only roam the, what I call the mothership, the Duval brewery, the main brewery, but of course they have other breweries in Belgium. Um, no two are the same. In fact, they're all just radically different. Um, so I got to spend some time at the Leafmans brewery. And that's of course where, uh, you know, more of the, the sour beer production, um, you know, North Flanders, or I actually call it West Flanders sour beer production. Um, spent some time right in Antwerp at De Koenig, which is a really cool brewery that I had visited again on that initial trip, and then Duvel had since um, taken ownership of that brewery, and then uh, Schuof, which is in the Ardennes, a completely you know other end of Belgium. Um, you know they speak French there, and everywhere else they're speaking Dutch as their primary language, and most of the people in North Belgium speak English as well. And the further south you get, the more it's just French. So it's a little little trickier down there um yeah and 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 a lot of breweries in between, but I guess uh to get to the point I, I i my my first task was to just learn as much as I could, just immerse myself, spend as much time walking the floor of these breweries, seeing how beer is made um and and you know helping out wherever I could. <laughs> Sure, sure. So, uh,
0: are you helping them
1: brew hoppy
0: beers and West Coast American style beers or hazy IPAs, as that case might be? Or uh, were you spending time learning about Belgian style beers? Or was it simply a, you know, looking at production methods, production brew houses? understanding the ways things are being accomplished and, uh, you know, looking at that kind of process. Uh,
1: yeah. You know, I mean, there's so many sharp people, um, managing those breweries that, and and we had already had so much, you know, interfacing prior to that. So, you know, it wasn't like, um, I was going there to, yeah, teach the ways of the West coast IPA or the hazy IPA. Most of them had had been exposed to that. Um, but I did certainly help out with some projects. I mean, a, a handful of them I can mention, um, they they do a barrel aged beer every year. And in fact, Jim Crooks went over early on and helped with some of the initial larger um, barrel projects that Duval took on and, and the main one being barrel-aged Duval. And this year uh, we switched it up to rum barrels. So got involved in, you know, working with the crew. I just kind of naturally gravitated to that project, of course. Um, and got to see it all the way through. You know, we racked the barrels early on when I first arrived, and I was we were you know present when the the beer was finally packaged. So that was pretty cool to see that project all the way through from, you know, uh, brew house production all the way through to finished packaging. Um, there were uh, some other cool projects, some some collaboration projects that then resulted in some learning. I think, yeah, there was there's always this curiosity how to bring kind of you know what's happening, what's cutting edge in craft. Into you know, this hundred-plus year old brewery um, and do it in such a way that it's not you know, twisting up the work, so to speak, and, and still speaks to their customer base. I mean, is enough for one brand there, but if you dig into their portfolio, they have a broad portfolio. There are there already is a West Coast session IPA, there's you know a West Coast IPA in the portfolio. Um, they do the wit beer really well, of course. They have Abbey beers. They make, you know, obviously Belgian golden, and then the other breweries. So, you know, their portfolio spans such a, an incredible number of beers. There's not too many stones unturned, and, uh, you know, I we talked a lot about how do you integrate kind of like yeah hazy IPA and some of the character of that into a Belgian beer, and then present that to. Um, you know, Duval drinkers in a way that they're going to understand. And I think at the end of it, um, it, it's always in a fusion. I talk about it like being this pendulum. You'd like to see it swing way out, but the truth is going to lie somewhere in between. Um, Yeah, so the the second half of my stay, because after COVID uh, hit and we were all kind of hunkering down, I was able to actually spend a bunch of time on the pilot facility there. And they have this gorgeous new uh, pilot facility, same type of brew house that we have in Venice. It's a Casper Schultz uh, 10 hectolitre. and 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 there I did brew some crazy kind of you know hazy IPA style stuff, brought some different yeasts in, use the same recipe, used their yeast, and it was perfect because we're on site and people could taste it at its peak of freshness and kind of understand the process. So that was that was really cool.
0: Nice, nice. Talk to me a little bit about the challenge of leaving Firestone Walker for a year, um, you know, getting it set up to where, you know, now you're not disappearing, you're still on the, the radar in general, you can still answer questions and you're still there to help, but how do you prep a brewery, the size of Firestone Walker with staff that, you know, depend on you, um, for you to take a year and, and be in, uh, in Europe for that year?
1: Man that's a great question and um I'm just so fortunate and Firestone is so fortunate to have this you know dedicated core group that you know now is the managing staff that all started as entry level brewers um and and stuck around that are running the plant and um you know I could run through all the names but suffice it to say that you know my my core kind of my team of 7 I like to call them the the, the managers of all the departments of the brewery have been with me long enough that I feel like we're practically hardwired. And um, so when and if something goes wrong, the answer is always the same across the board. And I mean, there were some little things. I mean, there, yeah, there's some things that you always have done that, you know, had to be passed on. Um, actually, a lot of that was passed on to Ali Razi, and that might not be a name that's familiar to everybody out there. But ali has been here for more than a decade, uh, started as just a, a Cal Poly intern, which is the local university here, food science student, worked in the lab for a while, uh, worked his way up through the lab, wanted to brew, worked his way up through the brew house and cellars, became the head of cellar. Uh, Wanted to learn production management. It was just one of those super curious, um, you know, brewers that was just always wanting to learn. And and now he's uh, director of production. I mean, the guy is doing pretty much everything that I would have otherwise been doing. (laughs) And, uh, um, you know, same goes for, you know, Dustin Krull, who's a name that's probably more uh, familiar with everybody. Um, has been a brewer here forever Is the head brewer in charge of brew house operations, just rock solid. And, and he and I, like, you know, we finish each other's sentences half the time in terms of how do you want to change this recipe? Yep. You're right. You know? And <laughs> so some of it's just time, right? I mean, we all have been working together for so long and uh, you know, some of it's just that exercise in, um, I don't, I wouldn't use the word trust. It's just, you know, it was something I had to do to make this happen. Um, And I highly recommend it, especially to anybody who's been, you know, kind of burrowed into their brewery for, you know, extended period of time, 10 plus years. Like I said, I've been here almost 20 years. Um, It's really refreshing to be able to step away from a while and really rewarding to see it operate so smoothly uh, when you're not around.
0: (laughs) Now, there's also that kind of um, ego risk when you do this, that if things do continue to operate just fine (laughs) without you um there are certain folks that can't handle that and that need to be needed and and uh you know so how from your perspective do you balance that you know wanting the op you know the team to be able to operate without you but also needing to have a role and a voice in this and uh and put your own stamp on what yeah Walker i does.
1: i suppose it maybe there is some you know professional risk there. I, I didn't see it that way because I, I guess I've looked at, and then this doesn't, this isn't just in a brewery, but I've, I've looked at, um, you know, a good manager uh, delegates and trusts and teaches, you know, um, I, you know, I'm probably not the world's best teacher, but I like to teach. I like to give that information and make sure, empower people to make good decisions. And Honestly, and and I think there's a lot of brewers out there who can relate to this. When your brewery's growing really fast, it's just a survival. Uh it's part of survival to bring people up along with you or just even if you're not bringing them up just like throw them the responsibility and and let them carry it or else you'll drown, you know? And um, you know, especially in the in more recent times since 805 was launched, this brewery was growing so quickly that if we didn't develop our management team, delegate and trust our teammates, we weren't going to be able to to do what we needed to do. Um, and I probably would have been out of a job back then, right? So <laughs> um, and, and maybe this was the ultimate test of that, but honestly, I think, Everybody on this team was well situated to handle it long before I left. I was probably just me getting my head together and getting out of here, you know, as much as anything.
0: (laughs) Well, it says a lot that, you know, you were you built a team and help everyone at Firestone Walker was able to help build a team that was capable of doing that. And, um, you know, and I'm sure they're all happy to have you back, even, uh, even if they could operate. <laughs> well, uh, I try I try absence. to be a nice guy.
1: So at least I'm, you know, a good guy to have around. Right. Um, you know, another thing that I'm so proud of about uh, the way we've built the the team is that, you know, now I'm not even involved as much or, or at all, really, in entry-level brewery hiring or or you know, lab personnel or packaging, each one of the managers of those departments is responsible to bring on their own team members. And we've really built a system because we're running, you know, essentially 24-7 that, you know, with a good quality, qualified candidate, um, you know, we can put her or him on the floor uh, or in whatever department we have, and that team should bring them up. You know, it, it, it isn't one of those like only the manager can teach you how to do it, uh, it's really like kind of you know immerse yourself with the team and the team will teach you and everyone takes a lot of pride in what they do. Um, that's taken a long time to develop and it makes such a. I feel like this is a really good learning brewery. Um, we still have all the elements of when we were a ten thousand barrel a year brewery with hoses and tri clamps and you know all these kind of funky things, roll, rolling pumps, uh, and then we have really heavily automated systems. And, you know, I think a a young brewer or a a young lab technician or a young packaging technician can come in and kind of see just how it all works. They can see the manual end of it, and then they can look at a screen and figure out how to drive this thing through automation. Um, So I think we've, you know, inadvertently built a really good learning brewery. Um, Yeah, so and and we also have Cal Poly. Again, I mentioned that before, but we've got this great uh, university locally that has a really incredible food science, engineering, um, agricultural um, uh, curriculum, and their policy is learned through doing. So a lot of the students that come out of there have usable skills. And I'm always just so amazed. We bring these Cal Poly students out, throw them on the floor, and they know how to do it. You know, I feel like when I got out of my undergrad and I all the book smarts, and then I was just kind of, you know, <laughs> struggling to figure out how to put it to use.
0: Sure, sure. Um, The world of craft beer is a different place now. Margins are more important than ever, so why not lower your ingredient cost? Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are the cost-effective solution for your fruit-forward needs. Old Orchard produces high volumes of their retail juice brand so economies of scale keep prices low for their bulk supply program. A little concentrate goes a long way, and you won't lose some of it through filtering like you would with purees. To start increasing your margins now, head on over to www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, for years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information and responsible for mapping millions of visits to breweries all across the United States. In early 2021, BreweryDB will reveal a whole new platform with all new marketing features for breweries to attract craft lovers to their unique brewery experience. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of BreweryDB and to increase your taproom traffic, visit MarketMyBrewery.com. That's MarketMyBrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. We can talk a little more at the uh, end of the podcast because I want to delve into some things. It is the 25th anniversary of Firestone Walker, and I think there are, you know, some key moments along the way that have been kind of pivotal for the business. But let's leave that uh, for kind of reflection towards the end. Uh, In the short run, last week, I mean, everyone... um, respects your experience and knowledge of hops last week was hop scores america's annual conference i know you were actively involved in that sounds like you were even honored by uh by the group with uh, uh as one a one of the very small number of brewers to ever receive an order of the hop uh uh commendation but um you know, after that week of, uh, of being immersed in what's going on in the hops market now, um, what were some of your big takeaways and uh, what are some of the things that you're excited about this coming year and some of the things that uh, uh, may throw a few concerns up on your radar?
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, having attended this conference now for over 10 years, um, and, you know, so, so my limited perspective, but in that window of time, I can tell you that the Hop Growers of America, the organization, the, you know, I don't know how many growers we have total in the country, but let's say the 80 or 90 core growers that are producing 90 plus percent of the hops are, I feel, as healthy, strong, um, connected as they ever have been. And I think... That has to do with, um, you know, a large part the craft brewing industry wanting to engage with hop growers and hop growers in turn um, receiving that information. I think, you know, I think when the first time I went to a Hop Growers of America conference, I felt like a real outsider. And I think these hop growers were looking at us brewers going, what are you guys doing here? This isn't your (laughs) conference, you know? Um, and we were just happy to be there and be flying on the walls and listen to some of the conversations that are going on. Now the brewer element of this conference, um, there, there could very well be as many brewers that show up for these things when it's a physically attended event. Um, this one was online of course. And I worried about that initially, like, Hey, are we swamping out there? networking opportunity. But I feel like the vast majority of them have really embraced that opportunity and are proud. Just like any brewer, these hop growers are so proud of the product that they make. They're multi-generational farms. Um, they take this all so seriously. And it's there's some really great exchange um, from the brewer's perspective. It's, it's, it's a great educational piece. Um, do I think every brewer needs to be there? No. But I think it's good for these these brewers to to attend once in a while or to pay attention to what happens there. There's some materials that that drop afterwards, like the uh, stat report. You know, I think that's something that every brewer should make sure they have access to, and that's sure. through the HGA website. Um, you know, I think you could get into the weeds a little bit. At, like, do we have a balanced portfolio out there? There's probably. You know, you know, we went crazy planting citra and mosaic. Is there more in the ground than there should be? I don't know. I, I, I don't think that everybody was showing their cards completely. Um, there's a lot of hops in warehouses, but that's a good thing for the industry to a point. Um, you know, price stabilization seems to be happening a little bit more. And I think most importantly, most brewers are feeling, and I could be a little bit off here, but from my perspective, it seems like most brewers seem to have better access to the varieties they need, now maybe better than ever um and then there's always these little world events like there was this awful hailstorm uh in new zealand that stripped a bunch right. of hops off the vine and that's going to have an impact um at least you know in this growing season um there were the wind events of last wind year yep, not, yeah. that that had an impact on azaka and some other key varieties um but that's going to happen every year um yeah i i think my takeaway is is super positive Honestly, um, and I feel like uh, so. So also as part of the Hop Growers of America, Hop Quality Group, which is a small organization, uh, non for profit. There's about I think there's between forty six and fifty breweries now in Hop Quality Group. We're celebrating our tenth year as an organization. We always show up for this as well because once one, it's an opportunity for us to kind of meet with key people in the industry, but also meet as a group. Um, I feel Hop Quality Group also is feeling really good. We had a transition. Um, John Mallett stepped down uh, as president. Altmo came in from founders as president of the organization. So there's some new blood in the leadership. John did an insane job of getting this organization off the ground and to, through its first 10 years. Uh, but there's just a lot of excitement within that group. Um, you know, we have funds collected for research. Tom Nielsen from uh, Sierra Nevada leads a lot of our leads our technical group. Um, so, you know, you've got this rock solid scientists uh, in the driver's seat on a lot of our technical matters. Um, and this you know, is a means
0: out- by which, you know, brewers can say address questions like, you know, are hops kilning temperatures and reduced kilning temperatures, you know, leading to other effects like hops creep in the brew house <laughs> a way for these kinds of. You know ways for brewers to communicate directly with the industry in a scientific means of of trying to think through and and come up with some uh, you know theories test them and then um you know come up with some additional actions i mean what is the what is that you know uh what are the the rails for the the hops quality group
1: yeah i mean there's always been hrc hop research institute that that does most of the driving for the hop industry on you know uh, anything from you know new pesticides. Um, you know oversight of some breeding stuff. Um, that's always been there, and Hop Quality Group is in no way trying to replace or duplicate that activity. Um, hop growers or Hop Quality Group, excuse me, if that's what I'm talking about, is uh, was solely uh, born out of. Um, you know, there were a few of us who realized, especially after Anheuser-Busch traded hands, that most of the people that were out working with the brokers, working with the farmers, were from the big leagues of brewing and were supporting the needs of very large breweries. Um, and that craft really didn't have um, much of a, a, a seat at the table in terms of communicating with growers, and for that matter, maybe we just lacked a lot of knowledge. Um, so a lot of us. You know, we, we formed together one to communicate the needs specifically of craft brewers, um, you know, which initially was, you know, oils over alpha kind of was our motto, um, you know, quality driven, um, you know, really hoping that uh, sanitation practices were, were were good because these hops were going to go in as dry hops into cold finished beer, not into the boiling kettle. Um, and that's what it was born out of, and then, as we progressed, yes, we started looking at things like kilning temperatures. you know, no two farms maybe we're doing exactly the same. That can be okay if the end, we get to the same point. but, yeah, <laughs> maybe that one bitter we could have shot ourselves in the foot a little bit because we were really pushing hard to lower kiln temperatures, which has happened, has trended down, and I think you could rightfully say that hop creep kind of followed right behind it. it became a little bit more of an issue, <laughs> so <laughs> Thanks, thanks, hops quality group. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: now I think on
0: uh, you know taking the long view, we can deal with hops creep in exchange for uh, more flavorful hops that uh, uh, excite drinkers out there and uh, you know give brewers more uh, more crayons to color with.
1: Well, I think what was what was so interesting that came out of that is that that farmers reacted, and you know when new kilns are built, a lot of that that capability is built in. Um, and, and just that growers are so willing to respond to brewers' needs is pretty cool. I think that witnessing that alone was was really cool.
0: Watching this whole feedback loop close, you know, between uh, the agricultural side of beer and the brewing side of beer, has been just one of the most incredible stories of the last decade. Um, whether it's happening on the hop side, whether it's happening on the barley side, you know that the. the The pieces getting closer together of being more of a a dialogue than a order off the sheet, you know, or look at the specs and and use what we can get. Of brewers being involved in the process of creating these things and helping the agricultural side develop, Um, it's hard to understate just how important all of that, you know, kind of connection and close loop really is for the experience that people have making beer and drinking beer today.
1: Yeah. And it's, I think it's, it's one of those elements that's core to our business as, you know, artisanal craft producers. Um, and you know, I, it's, it's funny, like once you can't be in this business for very long before you realize you start meeting a lot of farmers and then you start realizing like how important those relationships are. And then as soon as you think, you know, a little bit about it, you realize, you know, nothing, you know, (laughs) and here I am, you know, still just, fascinated by all of it. And I feel like I've, I, I've immersed myself in the, in the hop world, no doubt. I feel like I know a couple things there. I got a lot of things to learn. And now I got, I need to like kind of refocus some of my time and efforts on, on barley and malt. You know, I mean, there's a whole nother world. And, and back to the European um, experience, uh, I got to spend some time at some malt houses in Europe and certainly was, was working with a whole different kit of ingredients. And, I, there were more questions than answers. I mean, it was just, you know, I got, I, I kind of got pushed back a little bit, like, wow, where's all this stuff been? Um, not, not specifically to, to uh, maybe specific tools, but, um, and I, I probably can't speak to specifically, but, you know, barleys that behave completely different in a brew house than what I'm used to, you know, lower diastatic power, different protein matrices, you know, malts that you know, just convert completely differently. I mean, one example of this was, and you know, I it, when I went to SIBO, we 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 practiced. You know, in every brewery I've been in, we've always had uh, the ability to do these step mashes, right? So, you know, if you want to do a protein rest or a beta glucan rest for whatever reason to free up the lot or ton, but you know, here's your conversion window. And you know, in this school we teach, we start at 145 Fahrenheit, and that's where you start your beta amylase, and on and on and on and uh never in many of my SIBO books and i probably need to go back and confirm this but nobody ever talked about this 72 c rest and uh i was i was brewing with freddie who's one of the veterans at duval and i was struggling with a really heavy wheat and pilsner malt mash i could not get this thing to convert you know and i was sitting up like you know uh in my normal regular sack program doing my iodine test like man feel like an idiot here i don't know what's going on maybe i got the wrong iodine kitten freddie just looks at me like you didn't do your 72 rest bro you got to do that and as soon as i hit ding 72 everything cleared up done i'm like okay i've been brewing this long it took me <laughs> brewing with you freddie to figure this one out and it was very specific to their malts and everything but it was just like kind of one of those moments like wow there's always something to learn <laughs>
0: It's such an interesting kind of contextual piece that your ingredients could even change a, a match regimen to that kind of degree that's absolutely fascinating abs commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses tanks keg washers and small parts as a part of ABS Commercial's ongoing give back campaign they'll be giving away an ABS Keg Viking keg washer this June so make sure to periodically check the ABS Commercial Facebook page to find out when the contest opens up and how you can enter to win a keg viking are there any other uh, you know kinds of stories about ingredients that behaved differently um, in european uh, you know european or? Uh, origin ingredients um that you had to change some processes around
1: well um well I, I got a couple i guess i could talk about and one of the one of the really fascinating things that we did on the pilot plant uh at duval that i at least had not experienced before was working with malted rice and attempting 100 percent rice brews but going through a full conversion and everything in the malt uh, mash mixer excuse me um Couple interesting pieces there. Uh, All the positives of rice hulls are like amplified in a hundred percent rice malted rice mash. That was really cool to see. I've never it just ran off like nobody's business. It was just crazy. (laughs) Yeah, Um, that material doesn't necessarily want to go through a standard grain out pump. We found as well, so I ended up digging (laughs) that one out, but. Um, so some new materials that I hadn't worked with before that maybe weren't, you know, Belgium specific, but things that we were looking at. Um, and then, you know, I think, you know, there's always like a, an interesting different toolbox depending on whatever country you go to. And of course, Belgians are, you know, it's well known like spices, you know, orange peel and coriander in just about every brewery, especially if they're making wit. Um, you know, different uh, Belgian, you know, candy sugars, um, you know, you see those on the shelves everywhere you go and certainly were employed in a lot of the, you know, kind of classic beers. Um, yeah. I mean, nothing that you hadn't heard. You develop, it. it's, it's fun uh, to watch it sure. being, uh, being used in those breweries as, as it was.
0: Well, I think, you know, whenever you end up in a place that uses ingredients in such a, um, you know, a significant way, you also find that the those ingredients get stratified out in different ways too. That uh, you know, in the same way that an Eskimos have X number of words for ice, um, you know, you find that you know coriander isn't just coriander, and you know orange peel isn't just orange peel when everyone is trying to differentiate and use them in different ways. Where um, did you find you know differences and uh, nuances and approaches to some of those same core ingredients there that might differ from uh, the way we look at it here?
1: Yeah. I think so, um, you know, but, but the other side of that is uh, not everybody was telling their secrets. so you know I, 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 <laughs> sure. sure. I learned what was going on in the duval world, um, but I can't really say how it compares to the other breweries around. Um, Fair enough. There's not quite the same <laughs> culture of
0: openness and sharing and the rising tide and all of that. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, there is this, there is an element uh, I kept referring to it as is this kind of Belgian magic that, uh, you know, um, There, there's some little special tricks that you wouldn't normally hear about being employed. I don't know that I can repeat them all, but, you know, just give
0: I, me one. Just just give us one. One well, I mean,
1: you know, I think it's well documented that, you know, probably in Europe, Tetra, which is, you know, synthesized either from ISO or alpha acids, but is light stable, but also enhances foam is used a lot, mainly in, in throughout Europe, um, maybe not in Germany as much, but because foam is so important to the presentation of beer. And literally, if you're sitting in a cafe in, in Belgium and you're served a beer with no foam, most people will just send it back. Like that's an indicator of quality. Um, something that we're not as focused on here in the States. Um, and yeah, there's a few tricks out there to make – to ensure that there's always good lacing and foam on a pier. <laughs> you put foam on a glass of water if you needed to. So,
0: <laughs> Well, yeah. You know, it, it is maybe an under un, – has been an underappreciated piece in the United States as people seem to focus on – quantity of beer in their glass more so than uh, the quality of that foam and uh, we've made that nasty trade-off just so that people don't feel like they're getting shorted um uh, but i do think you know there has been a movement of the last number of years to uh, reinforce the importance of that kind of presentation
1: yeah maybe maybe instagram too. you know is is a good thing in that regard because you know a beautiful looking beer is just you know gosh it's the best thing, right?
0: <laughs> For sure. But now on Instagram, your beautiful looking beer is an American sour fruited beer that's blue. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs>
1: Blue no, no, blue no. And chody. <laughs>
0: That's another subject altogether. Let's not get into to that. Kind well, of I thing. don't make those, yeah. so I can't help you there. There you go. There you go. Um, let's talk about. I want to uh, pick your brain for a little while on on hops. Um, you know, at our brewer's retreat, one of the things that always stuck out to me was when you would sit down with a small group of home brewers and start rubbing hops. Um, you were able to kind of talk about how to smell, how to evaluate um, how to approach these from a sensory perspective. And I think that, uh, you know, that's a particular skill that you, uh, offer the world, um, looking at it, uh, you know, and explaining your process for evaluating hops, um, you know, how would you describe it? And what do you think, you know, what goes through your head as you say, grab a, a sample of a new hop, what are the steps that you take to dig through that, to help try to understand it?
1: Um, You know, I don't think there's any crazy secrets or or weird science to it. Um, Most of it's experience and, um, you know, developing a lexicon or, or, you know, developing the descriptors that at least your team that you're doing any kind of selection or, you know, qualifying of hops um, will understand. Um so we work hard as a group and most of that's just going out and selecting together and or looking at hops collectively at the brewery. Um you know I think what I was trying to tell the the homebrewers that we were working with at that retreat was you know every time you open up a bag of grain every time you open up a bag of hops you should you know choose some of the grain it'll tell you a lot look at it same with your hops look at it um right away you're going to see is there is there some kind of pest Um, situation going on is the malt kind of chewy and not crisp and clean is there any kind of musty character these are just like the simple things because you know it's been said a million times crap in crap out without like really good raw materials you're not going to make a great beer you can't like convert it into a great beer somehow magically in the kettle by boiling it off or something you know Um, but I mean going a little bit further you know when when we start looking at uh, you know, brew day, or or let's say we're trying to formulate a dry hop for a new luponic distortion or something like that. Um, you know, we're just really going into the hop closet, uh, checking lots, making sure it lines up with what what we thought we got from selection, and getting them out on the table, um, grinding pellets, and getting them under everybody's nose, and people describing what they're smelling because likely you know, a, a good amount of that, right. is going to make it to the finished beer. And I'm sure you've talked exhaustively with brewers about how you can't really smell a hop and know exactly what the beer is going to taste like. But with some experience, there's definitely some things and, and oftentimes it's maybe selecting away from things that just aren't going to work. You know, um, this kind of classic freezer burn, I always call it just pellety character. Like you open up a bag of hops and it smells a little alfalfa and pellety. Like it's probably not going to make a great brew, uh, a, a great dry hop and that maybe needs to go to the brew house. Um, and, and so, you know, we're, we're selecting around things that probably aren't going to work well for us, really focusing on the hops that really pop and have, you know, just good, clean, beautiful flavors and then try to build around those. So, you know, that's what's been great about Luponic Distortion is that it's really allowed us to kind of repetitively go through this process of designing new hop uh, dry hops that aren't necessarily trying to flavor match an exist, existing brand, and in doing so, we learn a lot about new hops that we might make new beers with. Um, you know, getting a little bit away from that, I guess. But one thing that's been a big help for us, and I think any brewer could do this with just simple ke- uh, kegs or small brewing equipment. We bought, um, I think, something like eight of these um, one hectoliter conical homebrew fermenters. And we plumbed them up to glycol here in the brewery, got temperature control on it. But the main purpose of it was to be able to take a a, a single beer. And usually it's like mid-firm or right towards the end of fermentation. We'll grab it off a big fermenter, bring it over to the set of eight, separate out and get the exact same, you know, what was the same wort, now is the same beer in eight tanks and hit each one with a different hopping regimen. So we can taste them all at the exact same time. Um, and get a real feel for what, you know, if we're just looking at different hops or hops at different rates or or different hop blends. And we can really um, rapidly generate a lot of data. Um, We also have the benefit of having a GCMS, an analytical chemist in-house. So we can also do some analytical work and log this stuff at a little more advanced level. But just the sensory part of that, which any brewer can do, is just so powerful. Now, of course, it takes a lot of time. Um, It takes reproducibility. It took us a little while to make a good beer on a small tank, believe it or not. I mean, um, but once we got there, man, it was, it's powerful. Um, And so we, we do this almost weekly. Um, That we're just tasting these little batches and just constantly reminding ourselves like, okay, we rubbed that hop. Now we made a beer with it. Wow. Okay. Like that better than expected. Ooh, shit. That's no good. You know? That's not going in the next beer kind of thing. And what that's led me to and might be counter to what a lot of other brewers have is like we actually have a, a harder time integrating high percentages of hops like Citra and Mosaic into our beers. Like we're probably one of those rare West Coast IPA brewers that Citra is not even like a major deal on our... I sell more I sell more Citra to Duval to make Duval Triple Hop <laughs> than I use in this brewery, if that tells you anything. So... And I'm sure there's some brewers going, "What this guy can't use citric? What, is you know, get the training wheels off, buddy?" But I mean, it's more about the pungency and you know the need for great selection of that hop and and I think over time we've just found that rather it being like the main player because everybody else's beer kind of tastes and smells that way, it's found its way into more of a niche of enhancing, amplifying, not being the star in the in the thing there. So. Well, God bless
0: you for that. No, it was it's it's such a funny thing. Like, um, and I maybe this is just I I don't know. This is one hundred percent anecdotal, but I was just having a conversation with a brewer friend in Chicago the other day, and uh, and that came up. Like, I was thinking about as I was drinking through a variety of their IPAs, I was increasingly drawn to the non-citra IPAs, and I think that uh, there's just something that's so obvious and sweet now about citra where it just it's it's too easy you know that it's it's too obvious and apparent and, you know, I just find my, I, I personally am so drawn to like, grown, uh, drawn to Nelson Sovin, I think for that reason, because it's an interesting, challenging hop. It's in the same way that like, I don't love pop music, but I love like noise rock bands where I have, <laughs> like, where it's not immediately pleasurable and you have to find some way to build meaning out of it. And the right. I, I'm attracted to that. Um, you know, it's, but it's interesting that I, that you say that same kind of thing that Citra is just, um. It's just a little too common and doesn't quite give you the, the yeah, different well, and, characters.
1: And so then, and, and you know, we're not the first to try this or whatever. But I think what we're we're practicing more with hops like that that have such a you know they're so common throughout is using those as more mid firm or late firm hops where you get some yeast activity on them and then they really start kind of changing and maybe your yeast has a more specific stroke there that comes out a little more unique in the end and maybe softens up those hops or integrates them a little bit better. I think, I think there's a lot to that. Um, yeah. And, and maybe it is maybe just trying to be different now that you mention it, you know, it's just like, uh, Rob, uh, Rob from Thornbridge has a great one. I think I can repeat it. Um, he's like, Oh, since the advent of mosaic hops, any Muppet can make an IPA.
0: if you use citra as this kind of accent note um you know what generally uh, like how much in a percentage wise would that make up um you know of a hops bill in, in the dry hop just to kind of add that? I, you almost could think of citra like you know using vanilla in a fruit beer oh, yeah. in, in in small amounts just to add that little extra softness and that little extra you know kind of appearance of sweetness that helps highlight certain characters without it being a, a dominant primary note yeah for you what's that accent level for citra
1: uh, it's definitely less than 20 percent. it's probably in that 10 to 15 range i mean i'm just thinking about like union jack which you know now is um you know old school west coast ipa probably at this point and and all that but it does jacks
0: old school that makes me really really (laughs) old and so let's let's not talk about that (laughs) okay
1: well you know we haven't really altered that beer to be like kind of like the progressive lower bitter you know beer and we've tried to keep the, the the dry hop pretty similar um but in any case, there, there's probably about a 10 15% citra addition in that beer and always has been as long as we've had citra available. Um, there's also some Amarillo in that beer, which in its day was like, that was like, ooh, new school <laughs> dry hop. And now it's like yesterday's news. I think that beer was developed in 2007. So it's been with us for a long time.
0: Well, um, let's talk about uh, some newer hops varieties. Obviously, you know, you are a an influential brewer and you know as new hops are coming out and experimental hops um folks love to share their stuff with you and so i know you've got uh you know some experience testing rubbing smelling brewing with you know bench testing etc with uh you know some new forthcoming or recently released hops um talk to me about some of the more interesting characters that you uh you found uh over the past year or two and um You know, what you find interesting about those.
1: Yeah, I don't think I'm going to mention anything that you haven't already heard. Um, You know, we... How do you know what we've already heard, Matt? I listen to some (laughs) of the podcasts. You talk to everybody,
0: man. Oh, well, you know, apparently not to you until now. But uh,
1: yeah,
0: I guess I should have...
1: (laughs) No, I mean, just like everyone else, I mean, people drop some experimentals here and we play with them. Um, but I am going to say, I think, you know, in terms of things that have found their way all the way up to the production level at this point, um, Nectaron out of New Zealand, I'm sure you've heard about that one. Yeah. I mean, for us, at least, you know, the lot that we received, it wasn't just that ultimate stroke of Southern hemisphere, Blanc, you know, Nelson-esque, it lays in there somewhere with... You know between it and maybe you know i'm just going to pull one on my hat but maybe yeah maybe shifts it more, a little more towards mosaic and its soft fruit character but we really like it and uh, uh the next luponic dis- distortion will have a large portion of that um gosh you kind of got me stumped here because you know all of them are going to be the ones you already heard about talus and some of these others that that we're starting to integrate into production brews um it doesn't but uh,
0: let's not just talk about you know the what it is you know when you t- taste and rub something I like tell what is your internal, uh, um, what do you, the descriptors that you create for that? And how do you think about the flavors that that hop might bring to it? Strata would be another one. How do you think about, mm. you know, some of these, uh, the way that these flavors are, and then in, in some of your working with them so far, how do you find that they bring different characters out of different hops?
1: Right, okay, well, I mean, I would say that when we're when we're putting these hops on the table and we're starting to kind of lay into where they might fit in the program and, you know, what are we going to get out of them? There's always these, you know, what I would call like sulfur slash thiol driven hops. Um, They may be a little aggressive at first rub and also pretty aggressive in beer, but, you know, there's a lot of flavor potential. You know, they're the punchy ones. Um, And Citra was one of those, you know early on like when you first smell your first citra you're like whoa okay that's different than everything else and that may be largely due to thiols it's also due to just really high oil content you know so you have those punchy hops i think what we've been gravitating to more recently and again it's an old older school hop uh, but the hops in and around that family of like cashmere um, as the public cultivar um, uh, example and maybe others that play in that spectrum would be you know, El Dorado. Um, I think that you know those to me have a little more of that peachy stone fruit. There's tropical elements, but you know, I, I always say soft fruit, and everybody's like, "What are you talking about, soft fruit?" But it's a it's a softer hand, um, and for me, that's what a hazy IPA is all about. So, Mind Haze has a lot of those types of hops. Um, whereas Azaka might move a little bit more towards the punchy side of the spectrum because it's got a little more of that pineapple and probably a little more thial driven characteristics, but it still plays a little softer than some of those others. And I think can find its way into that fruit salad basket again. <laughs> um, I, I, maybe it's only because it's, it's just, it's so near and dear to my heart. I, I, I just love the hops coming out of Germany um, and maybe it's, Largely because of the relationships I've made there and the people I know and just there are these small farms and it's just such a cool uh, growing community. But I still have a soft place in my heart for the Mandarina Bavaria, you know, so, you know the, the, the Hollertal Blancs, the the melon. Um, I think over time that melon is starting to edge its way towards the pungency of American hops and delivering some of that um, soft fruit. I can work well in a hazy IPA as well, look at me, kind of hop. Um, but they'll never be as punchy as the U.S. hops. And I think it takes a lot of patience for a brewer to figure out how to coax the characters out of those hops. But the bonus there is is there's far less competition to get your hands on those hops. There's, there's not brewers clamoring for selection, so there's some really good lots out there in the world. Um, and then in, in the German processing time, and this is something that we've been looking at, more closely and i still haven't cracked this one yet but um, i feel like those hops when they go through the pelting process could gain from a t45 or a concentrating of the pellet so maybe that melon or that, that that blanc isn't as punchy as a t90 but maybe if we can concentrate it you know pick it at the right time get it to the processing plant quickly get it in that concentrated form that we might have something you know um we worked pretty hard on that the last couple of years. And like, I'm going to say we haven't cracked the code. We've got some good stuff and we have some stuff that's not performing as well as we'd like to for as hard as we worked for it. Um, But I think there's a lot there as well that plays in that same, same family. You may have heard that from other brewers as well. Mandarin Bavaria has found its way pretty large into our program. Yeah. Um, We buy a lot of it and it's not, you know, it's not the top note in any case, but it's a great supporting cast member um, and I think Blanc plays there as well. I think Blanc can support some Southern Hemisphere character if you really use it properly.
0: What does doing the doing it the right way
1: really mean? <laughs> well, I, yeah, that's that's a good question, and I think that's something that we've always worked on. Um, the, the, the German cultivars, I think, if anything, have a tendency towards that pellety, slightly vegetative character. So you can't just go heavy-handed or go twice as much to get twice the punch. I think you have to, to work on coaxing it out a little bit more. Um, so I think that our, you know, our, best, um, our, our best examples are um, blends. Um, although I think we're getting better at single hopping with mandarina and Blanc and melon. Um, and, and I think I've seen, maybe I mentioned this, but I think over time I've seen kind of mandarina fall into its groove. There's enough people growing it and there's some just excellent quality out there. Um, I think I've seen melon really come into its own. I think if you tried that hop three years ago and were like, nah, you should try it again. Um, And I also think that, uh, you know, this is another one of those cases where selection is going to make a big difference. Um, uh, You know, maybe everybody knows this out there, but it it bears repeating in that here in the United States, uh, 100 percent of the crop is under irrigation in Yakima, I should say, uh, probably almost 100 percent of it in Oregon. Um, And 100 percent or 99 percent of the crop is going into refrigerated bale storage after harvest. It's not sitting out on the farm. There's still a tradition in Germany where, uh, you know, less than or maybe 50 percent, if we're lucky, of the crop is under irrigation, Um, and about there's about enough capacity for 50 percent of the crop in refrigeration, and there's a tradition to hold bales on the farm a little bit longer until the brokers can come and pick them up. and I think that's where it gets important to to really communicate your needs um, and and try to to drive that quality message with your merchant, um, and and spend a little bit of time out there and familiarize yourself with which is the fun part, you know. Um, I think back to Hot Quality Group. I think you know it's a daunting task. I don't think we've accomplished everything we wanted to accomplish in the United States, or more importantly, learned everything that we wanted to learn. But we do have an initiative to branch out and, and start interfacing a little bit more internationally. And I think Germany is going to be one of those interesting growing regions where here in the United States, you know, there's 75 to 90 core growers that, you know, you could put on a, a couple year calendar and pretty much see them all. There's over 1500 or there's close to 1500 growers in Germany and they're spread all over the place and they're super small farms and not everybody speaks the same language. So uh, that's a little more of a daunting task. And you know, the last thing we want to do is go blasting in there, trying to tell people how to do their business. I think it's going to take us a little bit of time to to get over there, get a lay of the land and, you know, start encouraging what, again, craft brewers are looking for um, to, to to drive towards a hop that works really well for dry hopping.
0: Sure, sure. In terms of, you know, the the broader industry, having multiple growing regions that are all growing hops that modern brewers want to use becomes a good insurance policy um are there evolving areas of hops growing um that are on your radar in terms of improving quality of hops of improving volume of hops of doing some interesting things and providing uh, some different opportunities you know our traditional hops growing areas you know we're, we're familiar with you know but at this at this point given the Price of these crops and how prized they are by Sony Brewers, there has to be interest in every place where, um, where growing can be done efficiently and um, uh, cost effectively.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the Northwest is king here in the United States. And, um, you know, of course, there's expanding acres in Idaho in recent years. And by the way, some incredible quality. A hop we didn't mention earlier was Idaho 7 and now Idaho Gem, which I think are both great hops. We've integrated a lot of Idaho 7 into our program. So I think there's room to grow there. Um, I think that, you know, Michigan's one of those other states that has taken it pretty seriously. Um, You know, their their total acreage might not, you know, rival the Pacific Northwest, but it's a nice differentiating piece. Um, And I think the more that they have breeding programs that create some, Point of differentiation, not just terroir, but you know genetics that work really well there um I think if if those if those growers stick with it, there's going to be something really significantly interesting uh not that that hasn't already happened, I think you know Michigan chinooks are very different from Northwest Chinooks, and that's a real cool thing, and cashmere grows so well in Michigan, so uh, I think that's really one to keep an eye on um And then there's little things like, you know, a little bit of saws being grown, you know, in Germany and some Amarillo being grown in Germany. I think that's that's pretty interesting, especially if some of these other hops will grow um, in, you know, that far away from their homeland. Um, That's real diversification there. you know, what you're talking about is like there's enough alpha for everyone, but I think what craft brewers thrive on is the fact that New Zealand hops taste different and smell different than hops grown in Tasmania that are sure. grow, grown in Tetanang, grown in Hollertau, et cetera. So, um,
0: and those Michigan, even the Michigan Cascades have the like awesome like strawberry kind of like it's just a totally different kind of character that's also really fun to work into beers. And it's fun as a drinker to, to taste that kind of thing and, um, you know, and be able to enjoy it. I, you know, I, I was just curious because I imagine that uh, um, I am not as familiar with it. But, I, you know, there's got to be other places in this globe where folks are thinking, oh, we could probably grow some mops here.
1: Yeah. And, and and the key in the long run would be that those new growing areas develop their own breeding programs. Right. And then they have something that's, that's right. specific to their area um, that's going to grow and produce really well and also have a, a, a signature about it as well. So, yeah.
0: It is fascinating to watch hops become this, you know, it, it's so similar to wine grapes and where location and terroir and growing conditions and weather patterns and everything, soil conditions um, have such an effect on them and, uh, you know, have massive expressions, even in, in the very flavor of those things, which has significant impacts then in how they work with down the downstream product of beer that you actually make with them.
1: Yep, absolutely, Um, and it's 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 cool to see the growers in those different areas rise to the challenge of growing uh, whatever the 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 popular hop of the day is in their region and doing well. Here, you know, I I talked about a little bit earlier, but the Cascade Cup this year um, was perfectly split. You know, third, second, first place we had we had idaho we had uh washington and oregon all represented in the top 3 of the cascade cup this year and that's pretty cool to see that like great cascades can be grown in each region if you were sitting at the table uh rubbing those cascades yeah you would you would sense the little nuance differences um oregon happened to be uh the top this year um but uh you know, and we we love the Cascade Cup because it's this interesting challenge, not so dissimilar from a brewing competition like GABF, where a little friendly competition, I think, drives some, you know. Uh, a little extra effort, and some energy, some curiosity. Um, when we're doing the Cascade Cup in person at one of the uh, HGA conventions, the growers can then smell the winning hops, so they actually can rub what what the brewers chose. And mind you, this was the brewers who chose the hops, not the hop growers themselves. And, and we can align our, our notion of quality and, and, and the things that we want, so it's pretty cool.
0: That's interesting that it just uh, kind of, kind of um, helps – those growers get into your brewing minds and understand, you know, the, those exact characters and the exact nuances and, you know, and kind of pieces of, of that, that, uh, to help that decision making on on your standpoint because you know you as a brewer you're like, you like you get that feedback from your customers like they'll tell you on Untapped they'll tell you with you know consumer purchases at retail you have IRI data and you have Untapped scores and you can kind of triangulate and kind you know figure out what's what but uh, you know hops growers really just you know don't have that kind of direct feedback loop other than what you tell them um, is there some sort of feedback mechanism to to say hey you know See what you can do to push away from this, and and maybe there isn't much that the the growers can really do on their end to change some of the way that those flavors express in their hops.
1: Well, I mean, all the things that you already know. I mean, picking window is a ma- a major one, of course. Um, I I would say that 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 the most powerful mechanism for feedback would probably be more at the merchant level, and and you know, there's more and more sophisticated labs, uh, you know. At the merchant and, and distribution level, and there are even farms now that have pretty sophisticated labs uh, on site. And I'm always happy to see when there's more and more information provided. Um, now it's you know maybe it's the brewer's job to then look at what we have to work with data wise, and you know give some feedback to like this this is meaningful for me. This other stuff isn't. Um, and again, back to what Hot Quality Group is driving for and participation at HGA is just trying to like do as much of that communicating as we possibly can. We might not all know all the answers. Uh, it's just, you know, it's an ongoing, progressive conversation of quality. And, you know, again, I think over the last 10 years, we've really made some some great improvements in that communication. And as a result, we've had a, you know just some of the best hops we've ever had to work with. It's amazing. Sure. It's like you know, if if we were going back in time, I remember like trying to design, for instance, like Goose Island IPA back in the 90s. And I didn't know where those hops came from. And, you know, they, I don't even know if they're putting the date, the, like the harvest date on the boxes back then. It was like we're, we're really in the dark and, you know, we could stick our nose in a bag of hops and, and try to tell if it was going to be good dry hops. But it was really the, the roll of the dice. And uh, we were really relying heavily on just... You know, a little bit of luck and hopefully that we're getting the fresh hops from our merchant and, um, you know, we were storing them right. I mean, there were just so many question marks and so much unknown that I'm surprised we we did. We were making half as good of beers as we were back then, you know, Our, our technical
0: ability increases in concert and in a way that's connected to our discernment. And so, you know, as brewers got better at figuring some of those things out, and you know, selecting lots that hit certain notes. And as growers got better at delivering those, developed better processes to maintain some of those flavors, and we were able to express those things. Like those got better, but then at the same time, our ability to discern good from bad tracked right ahead of that and it always you know they they always seem to move together and so we're now at this point where our ability you know 10 or 15 or 20 years later to maintain those qualities and ops develop push accentuate highlight amplify you know are through the roof relative to where they used to be but also our ability to discern minuter, smaller and smaller tinier and tinier differences in quality has also increased to that same kind of point. Um, and both of those things move together so that we never achieve this point where we're really happy. You know, we never <laughs> achieve that point where you're like, oh, now we've really hit it. All you simply do is develop a language that is, allows you to more discreetly and more finitely break down what you like and don't like. And so you just have you know, developed more and more granular ways of digging into the small pieces there. So the the fun part about it is we're never going to be satisfied,
1: you know? <laughs> so true. <laughs> but, I mean, that's what keeps us in this game, right? It's just, you know, the the, the endless pursuit of the perfect beer that's just out of grasp. <laughs> and that –
0: we will, it will always be a pursuit. We will never achieve it. And it's, it's an absolute I mean, that. it's kind of a fun and awesome thing to wrap your head around. Um, but we've been talking about hops for a long time, which I appreciate you talking to me about because of, again, I'd love your, your perspective on this. Um, but I think we should, you know, probably, uh, uh, broaden the conversation a little bit before we uh we uh, wrap up here and talk about you know like like we said earlier you've got 25th year anniversary for firestone walker um the brewery's gone through a m- number of stages while you've been with the brewery um why don't we uh just you know take a historical look back and think about some of those pivotal moments over that history um, what they meant for you professionally what they meant for you as a brewer Um, Some of the products that you, you know, and the beers that you developed that you're particularly proud of that you thought, you know, spoke to whether it's a moment in time or what the brewery you know's vision really was. Um, And, you know, and what are some of those kind of key moments along the way for Firestone Walker?
1: Well, uh, I don't know how much time you have, so uh, we'll we'll dig into it. It's been a long 25. Part two of the podcast, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 25 year road. But uh, no, I can I can kind of.
0: We're the highlights? highlights.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, the brewery starting in 1996 in the in the in the age of amber ales, um, and with an English uh, owner uh, in the ranks, um, you know. So so DBA was the the flagship, the original beer, gorgeous beer, English bitter slash English pale ale, um, and the real like differentiator there was fermented in oak barrels. Um, which is something we still do today. Um, and, uh, you know, it's that was the beer that carried the brewery forward, um, you know, and, and was our best-selling beer until probably 2004, 2005. So, for like, for the first 10 years almost of the brewery's existence, DBA, and it was mostly draft beer, Um, drunk here in the Central Coast. And that was really our world. You know, three counties, uh, one distributor, uh, mostly draft, just a a really focused local um, following. And there weren't a lot of other breweries in the Central Coast. So we were really kind of, we were it. Um, I came on board after five years of DBA. And my first job was to uh, formulate a, a more hop forward or West Coast style pale ale. I came out of the Midwest, but um, you know, coming from Goose Island, we had done some dry hopping. I mentioned that, and so Pale Thirty One was born, and um, you know that was maybe the first step towards kind of our hop forward beer profile, and or I say, should say uh, portfolio that we have. Um, and then we just kept kind of you know slogging along. We were getting a little bit out into L.A. and Northern California, but really, again, our core market was the Central Coast. Always has been. Um, And it wasn't until 2006, 2007 that we released our first IPA. (laughs) Mind you, this is a a brewery, you know, right on the west coast of California, right in the epicenter of hoppy beer brewing between Sierra Nevada, Anchor, Stone to our south. I mean, completely surrounded by hoppy breweries. And we waited 10 years to release uh, an IPA, and that was Union Jack. And that was really a game changer. Union Jack then became the number one selling beer of the brewery. Um, and that that led us to Double Jack and Wookie Jack and some of these other beers. Um, Cheers to Wookie Jack! You know, I'm drinking some right now. Yeah, that's what I'm drinking yeah. as well. So, <laughs> um, and and then you know uh, things started to change. I think for our 10th anniversary, another pivotal moment was when we released our first barrel aged beer. Um, And, you know, oddly enough, having worked for 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 Greg Hall and I give so much credit to Greg Hall for getting me started in craft brewing, gave me my first job, taught me so much, introduced me to so many people. I would kind of made it a point that I wasn't going to do a barrel aging program because Bourbon County Stout was the original. It was the beer that started kind of that whole thing. And that was Greg's deal. And, you know, I was young and wanted to strike out and do my own thing, but I kind of succumbed to the urge (laughs) and we started the barrel aging program. Um, and that first anniversary release where we brought winemakers to the brewery, um, had them create a blend and then released that out to the world. It was it was a game changer for us. I mean, it didn't rock the world, you know, that year per se. But I think our barrel aging program got us some street cred and connected us with some new beer fans that would have otherwise maybe passed over Firestone and gave us a little more of a national um, recognition a little bit. You know, those are the days where, you know, some breweries even led into new markets with their barrel-aged beers. I mean, I remember learning about founders through their barrel-aged beers right. and then later falling in love with their their sessionable beers. Um, and same with Cigar City. I only knew them for their big beers before I ever was introduced to their to their other beers. But in any case... Uh, barrel programs developed, you know, eventually Jim's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jim Crooks, who is our quality manager early on, branched away and did barrel works. And we started our kind of wild beer program and barrel age program in Bulton. Um Yeah. And then roll the clocks forward to 2012. And we released this little beer as kind of a, you know, I don't even know how, how like well thought out or anything it was, but we released 805 um and again it just ignited this incredible following and almost this like rebirth of our brewery in the central coast again it was like every surfer every rancher uh you know everybody driving up and down the 101 had an 805 sticker in their back window and had a 12 pack in their fridge so it's, it's,
0: it was it's literally amazing i remember driving uh we were out in california in the craft beer bring rv in like 2015 and we had uh we were had, had gone to we were i think we'd seen you in in paso and we're driving uh you know further down to buellton and, and you know having didn't realize just what a phenomenon 805 was and then we looked over and saw this truck you know as we were passing it totally murdered out you know blacked out windows black rims black tail lights murdered out only thing that you could see on this truck was a little white 805 sticker on the back window and it's like you look at that like that's a craft beer from firestone walker and firestone (laughs) the firestone walker brand doesn't necessarily matter to that guy driving that truck but 805 805 matters to that guy and uh you know and that was a beautiful phenomenon to see that you could make a craft beer that didn't have to be marketed the way that craft beer had been marketed at that point you know it it was being marketed because it was it had this connection to this place and i mean in the terms of like craft beer being hyper local i mean you know there you go um it felt relevant to life and this dude with his blacked <laughs> out truck driving down the high interstate you know just had to have an 805 sticker i'm like that's you know, I love that craft beer hits beer nerds, but I also love that craft brewers can also sell beer to audiences that don't need to get wrapped up in varying nuances and politics and everything else. And they can just make yeah. something that feels cool. Anyway, um, and that's that's a big portion of the beer that you all make these days, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, 805 will be, you know, 65, 70% of our production <sighs> next year. Yeah. And behind that now, we've released a new beer called Cerveza, which is kind of a lager uh, version, uh, a new beer. Uh, it's, it's very much inspired by, you know, south of the border, Mexican lager. Um, but, you know, back to the story, I feel like when 805 hit, it was that perfect confluence of right liquid, right time, right marketing, and just a real honest approach to getting this beer out there. And you know, we took it so seriously on the quality side. We built, you know, we doubled our lab uh, power. We took, you know, everything we knew and we pumped it into this, this simple beer 805 to ensure that we were always going to deliver on quality. And I think that's what kind of tied me back to my Midwest Siebel roots, where we were just told that, you know, attention to detail, quality, quality, quality. And, you know, I have to admit that I took a lot of, um uh, you know, I don't know, cues from Dan Carey and and Spotted Cow. You know, I saw this beer coming from one of the best brewers in the country that resonated with every beer drinker in the state and became a bestseller, not just to craft brew drinkers, but to everyone else who loved beer, just to beer lovers. And, you know... Um, so in, in some ways it's like one of my proudest you know things that, things that I'm very proud of for our team that we were able to accomplish that and it afforded afforded us the ability to continue down the road of innovating in barrels we never stopped you know pumped a bunch of resources and time into barrel works continued to push the envelope on our hoppy beer program um, you know so uh, it's a balancing act of course. Um, you know, I, I always say this, that having a beer like 805, I encourage everybody out there who's a brewer to figure out how to get one of these low IBU, low specialty malt, no dry hop beers into your program because it's the best yeast owner you could ever have. Like <laughs> right. all of the house ale yeast harvested in this entire brewery is harvested from 805, brought to the brinks. We never harvest from a dry hop, hoppy beer. We only, 805 donates at all, and we then can do whatever we want. We can mid-firm dry hop, we can dry, you know, doesn't matter. We're not going to collect yeast out of those tanks. So, it affords you a lot of quality uh, yeast when you have a beautiful beer like that in the brewery. And now we have cerveza, so we have just endless amounts of pure, white, beautiful lager yeast as well. So, um, we're in good shape that way. We haven't figured out the hazy yeast trick yet. <laughs> I'm still working on that one. Sure.
0: Sure. Um, I know the brewers uh, out there are, are wondering like, where, where did Pivo fit into this, uh, overall history and schedule for, um, for Firestone Walker?
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to
0: use that as a segue to open one and drink one while we, uh, Oh, nice, the, nice. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, Pivo, gosh, you know, I, th- honestly, I think that, one, I've always loved Pilsner beer. Um, back when I was in Chicago, uh, I had the honor to, uh, brew with the crew at, at Goose Island Bader Brow Pilsner. I don't know if you remember that beer.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but that was a solid, that was a solid Pilsner beer. Um, you know, just like now we always talked about loved, uh, lager beer brewing and Pilsners as brewers, but it's a rare opportunity to have a chance to actually sell it out there in the real world. And, uh, you know, Pivo, the inspiration, I, I've told the story a million times, but rather than it being a true, like, German, you know, spent a lot of time in Germany, spent a lot of time in the Czech Republic, but the real inspiration came drinking a beer with Agostino from Bierafficio Italiano and drinking this Italian-made Pilsner beer that, you know, wasn't the clearest Pilsner, but it had beautiful foam and, oh my gosh, it had amazing noble hop character. And I was just like struck when I tasted that beer. And then when I met Ago and he could talk so passionately about making that beer and what it meant to him, I had to go home and make one. Sure, And, sure. Uh, and, it, it, and it's, it's, it's not just from Ago, but predominantly he is right. the inspiration. And then everything that we've learned as we've tasted beers traveling around Germany and, and all over the world for that matter. Um, And if folks want
0: to learn more about that, they can go check out the June-July issue, 2020 June-July issue of Craft Beer and Brewing, where you wrote a brewer's perspective on that, and Ago wrote his brewer's perspective on Italian pills and they're right and they're right next to each other and so you can get both of those perspectives on it thank you thank you for that (laughs) (laughs) so so talk to me about the more recent chapters of firestone walker what um what's exciting you now obviously you launched a hazy uh ipa mind haze recently well not recently but within the last few years um you know and then uh what's on the immediate horizon for you
1: yeah. So, so Mind Haze was released uh, early 2019. So we have two full years of production there. Um, and as you might guess, it's now the number one IPA in the portfolio and growing faster than I'm just shocked. about anything else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure you've heard it from a, a number of the people you've interviewed. It, it wasn't just simple like, you know, bring new yeast in, uh, change the dry hops, take the bitterness out. It was quite a process to learn how to make that beer. Um, I took... Probably as much or more inspiration from, again, German brewers making uh, wheat beers and what goes into making those hazy beers as I did from um, anything else. But certainly I was inspired by tasting some, you know, just amazing beers on both coasts. You know, I, I can't remember which it was first, but, you know, everybody's like kind of has an aha moment when they taste a heady topper. But, um, you know, tasting some Alvarado Street beers and some Green Cheek beers and For some Highland sure. Park beers here, I think in California really convinced me like, whoa, okay, <laughs> you know, I got to do this. So uh, certainly it was an inspired moment. Um, and we took a Firestone approach to it. You know, we're making more of, you know, mine haze might be more of a pale ale version of a hazy to most people, even though it's like in the 6% alcohol range. But, you know, it's, it's a three pound per barrel dry hop, four pounds uh, total in the beer. And I uh, mentioned earlier, not a lot of uh, citra or mosaic, um, you know, a lot of cashmere, uh, azaka, hops like that, Idaho 7, things like that. But, um, yeah, it was a learning curve bringing in this new yeast and getting up to speed with it. Um, I think those yeasts, along with the hops uh, that everyone loves in those beers, are prone to some sulfur notes that you need to learn how to manage. Yeast management is always a big piece of that, keeping the yeast happy. Um and, you know, as far as, like, what's on the horizon, uh, yes, indeed, we will be uh, releasing Double Mind Haze in 2021. In fact, we just brewed it yesterday. Nice. Um, oh, man. And it, it, it buggered up the brew house real good. <laughs> I think I think Dustin soared a day after brewing that beer, but it was fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and you know, it's funny. Uh, I, can, I can almost not believe I'm going to say this, but uh, we're playing around with fruited versions as well. And uh, I'm one of those brewers that, if you, you look back at my portfolio over history, there's been very few fruit beers. Obviously, there's been a lot of fruit integrated into the barrel works beers. And sure, that's where we sure. probably did the major portion of our learning. I mean, Jim brought that to us through his work. Um, and now trying to integrate it here in Paso, um, you know, it's, it's a work in progress. Let's just say there's not uh, a finished beer to taste yet, but we're playing around with that a little bit and trying to keep it, you know, that's the challenge is all fruit, no extract. Um, you know, I think your listeners know more about it than I do, but this is a a new challenge that I thought I wasn't going to do, but yeah, it's been kind of fun, kind of chipping away at this one. Uh, cerveza though, uh, you know, going into like serious lager brewing. I mean, we always did pretty decent sized batches of Pivo, reasonable sized batches of our Hellas lager, uh. But when we're when we're brewing 805 Cerveza, we're literally filling some of our biggest fermenters and really learning a lot about lager fermentation on the bigger scale. And it's been an amazing challenge, and I I absolutely love it. And uh, 3470 baby, I mean that yeast is like king, and it works in a big tank just like it does in a little tank. Maybe even better. Um, it's been great. Yeah.
0: Well, it's fun that you can still find new challenges after uh, this many years uh, brewing beer and uh, winning this many medals and and everything else that you have Um, for you as a brewer and for Firestone Walker as a whole. What is uh, what does success look like?
1: Ah, um, great question. Uh, I would think first and foremost. a a happy team keeping the family happy and i'm so proud of the uh the the team that that we have here um the longevity of the team you know people like to stick around um you know adam and david can take a huge piece of the credit there they've just been the kind of bosses you want to work for um you know giving a lot of room to be creative and support network around us so uh, i want to keep that going you know i really want to keep that going and uh uh, but I think you know, I think we've turned a lot to, like, what, what is it to, to turn a brewery over to the next generation? I mean, that's not going to happen anytime soon, but you've got to plan well in advance. So, you know, starting to look more at the sustainability of how we do our business, how do we build systems that are robust, that are going to last for a really long time, um, you know, bake in the quality program, You know, so that there's just no question that that goes forward, which is constantly narrowing and narrowing the window of acceptability. So then when you slip out, you're still like better than you were three years ago. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of that moving forward and and planning for the future in a way that when we pass the baton, um, we're going to be passing a brewery that's as healthy as it was today, you know, on to the next generation. And by the way, uh, Nick Firestone, Adam Firestone's son, Uh, has joined the company recently. And so, uh, you know, we we have family continuing on. The next generation is here uh, and he's doing an outstanding job. It's really fun to have him here.
0: It's a cool thing to look at building a business like this with the intention of it being multi-generational and standing the test of time. Matt, it's been awesome to talk to you. We could talk about barrel works beers we could talk about barrel aged beers i could probably talk uh, you know about golden ales and all sorts of other things in more depth it seems like we've only scratched the surface even though we've been talking for well over an hour now at this point <laughs> so i let's just agree to talk at some point you know later on in this year and delve into some other subjects just just to do it because we can and um and then also i later this year like i said for all access subscribers we'll come out and uh, film some courses with you guys uh, across the you know varying disciplines of Firestone Walker to also help give a little more insight into what you do. Um but thanks for joining me on the podcast. GD Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Set your compass by roar North Star Pills, get higher quality concentrate at lower cost from Old Orchard, take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of db and check the ABS commercial Facebook page to find out how to enter to win a keg Viking. Of course, if you'd like to support this very podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button. And if you're a pro brewer, consider our new all-access pro subscriptions that combine both of the magazine's exclusive online content and more also access to classes that uh, Matt's going to be doing later on this year. Um, If people want to learn more about Firestone Walker, where do they find you guys, Matt?
1: Well, I assume you just Google Firestone Walker.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or 805 <laughs> that's that's probably a good solution and then uh, you know 2022 Brewers Retrieve Matt let's oh, do it oh man I'm gonna <laughs> hold you to
1: that that would be awesome I can't wait if, if you insist if you insist then I guess we just we just have to do it don't we yes
0: <laughs> well
1: awesome thanks thanks
0: for talking to me on the on the podcast Matt really appreciate it And Jamie uh, you,
1: you do such a good job so thank you for what you do and thanks for having me on alright cheers cheers